This is Alan Seaborn from Winning at Home. Welcome to In Progress, a podcast about faith, life, and how we grow. And just a quick update that I want to give you about, I've not done a great job of mentioning it every time, but I've got my new book that's in the process. It's gone through the editing, and now I just spoke with the designer right before I walked into the studio to start recording, and he let me know that it's probably going to be ready to send to the printer in the next, uh, let's see, in the next like week or two. And so that's not real time, obviously, as you're listening to this. It means that it's probably in the process of printing or I have no idea how long that process is. Um, I'm actually, I'm in the, I'm also in the process of trying to come up with a name that I like better than the one that I had. I wanted to call it Five Years Later, and I really like that title, but as I talked with different people, a lot of people were assuming that it meant it was a five-year-later update from my previous book about my health stuff, and so... I got that comment from a handful of people, or maybe not that comment, but that was what they were assuming it it was. And so I'm working on coming up with a title that's uh, going to avoid any of that confusion that I don't dislike as I sit with it for a while, which is kind of tricky. It feels like I like a title, and then like two weeks later, I'm like, ah, I'm kind of sick of that. So there's a little... I don't know what you want to call that, a little update on the book. And so I'm guessing in real time as you're listening to this, it's pretty close to being printed and I don't know about in hand, but you know, in the process there at the printer, which is pretty exciting. It's kind of crazy. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I think that was all I wanted to say about that. So now I want to jump into what I'm planning on talking about for this episode And it's kind of an interesting situation here or an interesting uh, way that I came across this information. There, I was just looking, it's probably been a couple months ago now, I was just looking for something that wasn't quite a sermon podcast to listen to, but something that was maybe going to be digging a little bit deeper. And so I found there's a place called Covenant Theological Seminary who has just lectures from their seminary recorded and it's available as a podcast. So the podcast is called New Testament History and Theology. And I've been listening through, basically, I think it's a master's level um, college course or graduate level course. And it's by a guy named Dr. David Chapman there at Covenant Theological Seminary. And for the first maybe 10 minutes here of this episode, I want to highlight a few of the things that he talked about in that hour and a half lecture that he did. And it was on the crucifixion. Now, Dr. Chapman wrote his 
doctoral dissertation or thesis on the subject of crucifixion. So he's taking, I guess it would have been probably years of research and writing and and digging into the idea of crucifixion. And he's presenting it in an hour and a half lecture. And what I want to do is take his already condensed down version and take it from an hour and a half down to about, like I said, 10 minutes and highlight a few of the things that he talked about from his research that really jumped out at me and then spend some time talking about some of the more, um, I know it might sound strange to think about talking about some of the more practical implications of some of that stuff and how it applies here and now today. But that's what I'm planning on doing. And I think you'll see as we get there how that goes. So what he did is he broke down from a Jewish and from a Gentile perspective what crucifixion in the first century would have been like, felt like, what would have come to mind when you think about this idea of the Messiah being crucified. Because he made the point that when you hear about crucifixion, you and I, we recognize and we know of one person ever that's been crucified. And he said it, it would have been very different for a first century person because they would have probably seen a few crucifixions in their lifetime. And depending on where they lived and, you know, how much of their life was spent out in public like that in a more populated place, there maybe were some people that had seen dozens or even hundreds of crucifixions. And so he goes into what a Jewish person would have felt about crucifixion, what their perspective on that was. Well, Deuteronomy 21.23 says that anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. Now, he talks about in the original Hebrew, there's some question or some, uh, you kind of have to make a judgment call as you're doing some translating because it talks about anyone hung on a tree, which is what crucifixion is, uh, is under a curse of God. And they were trying to figure out that little phrase there, curse of God, does that mean that God is the one doing the cursing? So it's a curse that God executes, I guess you would say, on a person? Or uh, is it saying a person cursed God? So a curse of God, a curse toward God. And he points out that the religious leaders at the time, when Jesus was arrested, they, um, they brought a blasphemy charge against him, claiming to be equal with God, claiming to be God's son, claiming to be 
one with him, they were condemning him for this. And that kind of lends some credence to the idea um, that a curse of God may have been the person is cursing God. And they thought Jesus maybe was cursing God by claiming to be God. So he was bringing God down to the human level. And so uh, that's kind of the initial perspective where a Jewish person would be thinking, okay, the Messiah would not, the anointed one of God, would not be hung on a tree, would not experience this curse or be the one who is cursing God. That doesn't make sense. And he points out that in the Old Testament story of Esther, in the book of Esther, tells this story about um, this Jewish woman, Esther, who becomes queen, and her uncle, Mordecai, becomes, not in general, but by one person, Haman, so hated that Haman decides he doesn't just want to kill Mordecai, he wants to kill the entire Jewish race. He wants to wipe them off the face of the earth because he hates this one guy so much. So what he does is he constructs a 75-foot high, uh, the word that's used in the translations that I've looked at is gallows, but Dr. Chapman, in all of his research into crucifixion, says that this is crucifixion language that's used here in this passage and in the story of Esther. And so what happens is Haman puts together this gallows where he plans to, it's a weird word to think of on a gallows, but to crucify first Mordecai and then the rest of the Jewish people. And when Esther brings this to the attention of the king and pleads for her life, what ends up happening is instead of Mordecai and his people being crucified, being killed on these gallows, instead it's Haman. And so one of the first things that would pop into a Jewish person's mind when they think about crucifixion is they would think about Haman, this ultimate evil guy that you can picture as, man, he wasn't just trying to kill someone that he hated. He was trying to wipe our people out. And that's who you picture as the, I don't know about the ideal crucifixion candidate, but the first one that pops into your head. And he said, so for a first century Jewish person, it would have been very bizarre to make this connection that, okay, crucifixion, all we have associated with it in our minds is negative, associated with curse, associated with Haman. And now you're going around and you're preaching that this 
guy who was crucified was the Messiah. That, that doesn't make sense. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, starting in verse 22, Paul writes this. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. So knowing what we just talked about, this first century history from a Jewish perspective of crucifixion, you get why that would be a stumbling block, right? Paul's saying we're going around and we're preaching Christ crucified. And the first century Jewish audience who heard this message was like, well, people who are crucified are cursed. People who are crucified are like Haman. They're, they're bad. It doesn't make any sense that you're saying this crucifixion was of the Messiah, the long-awaited anointed one that we've been, we've been desperately hoping will come and bring God's reign, will come and bring peace and restoration and make things right. So it's a stumbling block to the Jews. And he said foolishness to the Gentiles. Because for, uh, you know, we covered the Jewish perspective, but from a Gentile perspective, who was crucified uh, were criminals. And Dr. Chapman goes on to explain that it really um, the word that's used when we think of Jesus being crucified between two thieves Thief is not really the right word. The right word would be um, brigand, which I don't know that I'd ever even really heard that word. It's kind of an old-timey, like I guess maybe if I'd heard it, I'd probably connected it with like pirates or something like that. You know, So maybe if you're into old movies or history of kind of that time period, maybe you know that word and just I'm out of the loop because that's not really my thing. These were people who would use force, would use violence in their theft. As they were stealing from people, um, they would do physical harm to them. And, you know, the reason that this was such a, a huge area of concern, such a thing that sparked fear for a first century audience, which, I mean, it's not hard to see why getting robbed and beat at the same time, why that would cause fear. But they lived in a world where, um, you know, there were some cities and usually walled and populated areas, and those were, you know, reasonably safe. You were around a military presence if you were in a bigger city, but, you know, crime really thrives in, um, not solitude, but in the shadows. And so where there's a lot of people around, you don't have to worry about that as much. But 
the real danger came when you would travel from one city to another and you would be on these roads like the story Jesus told of the Good Samaritan, the man who was attacked in that story and beaten. He was on his way between places in a not-so-populated area, and he was beaten and robbed. And people lived in fear that they were going to be the one who was beaten and robbed, which, of course, totally makes sense. You know, I, I don't know. I don't know the degree of medical care that they had in first century um, Middle East, you know, but I picture that if you had a compound fracture of your arm or your leg, they probably didn't have anything they could do for you. I don't, maybe if it was a simple break, they knew, hey, you try to set this bone. I have no idea. But I can picture that being the victim of one of these brigands, one of these violent thieves, could potentially leave you maimed for life. Where you're, you're dragging that leg around that now it's, it doesn't work anymore because you got beat. And who knows, they don't know what to call it, but maybe your Achilles was torn and there's no way to repair that. Or you're, you know, there was a compound fracture in your leg and there's no way to repair that. Your leg is just, it doesn't work anymore. You know, I even think of uh, this isn't even a, a violent interaction that happened with me, but I have pretty bad eyesight. So my prescription, if you have prescription, is negative 6.5 in both eyes. So I wear contacts. And if I slide my contact kind of to the side of my eye so I'm not looking through it, and someone's five feet away from me, I can't make out their face. I, I don't know who they are. And, you know, I, I sometimes think, and maybe this is a weird thing to think about, but I sometimes think, man, if I lived, I don't know, 500 years ago, probably even more recently than that, what options would even be available to me? If I can't see more than five feet away, people are going, well, yeah, this guy, I mean, he can break some rocks if you put them right in front of him, and that's kind of what he can do because he can't see hardly at all. And I think about how, how vulnerable it would be to be in the ancient world and to have whatever kind of limitation. And these brigands, these violent thieves, I would imagine they could leave you with some serious limitations. If they caught you out on the road alone or with other people, but they still outnumbered you or they outstrengthened you, <laughs> neither of those are words, but you get what I'm saying. Um, so to a Gentile, that was the type of person who was crucified. 
And um, that would not be a punishment that a Roman citizen would endure. So I, I kind of think that subconsciously, from a non-Jewish, from a Gentile perspective, people probably felt like, well, no one who matters would ever be crucified. No one who is important, no one who is significant would be crucified. And so when Paul says we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, he's not overstating that. But he goes on, he says, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. And like I said, now I, I want to transition from talking about what this would have felt like. And if you, if that was really interesting to you and you, um, you know, getting into the first century mind is like, oh, that was really cool. I would encourage you, I'm going to mention the name of that podcast again, because this came from Dr. David Chapman's research at Covenant Theological Seminary. The podcast is called New Testament History and Theology. And what I've shared there is from episode number 12, but I've listened to up through 12. I think I listened to episode 13 too. Um, and I've been enjoying him digging into kind of on a deeper level, some of these texts that maybe are, or are not very familiar to us. Um, so I'd encourage you to check that out if, if you're interested in something like that. But now I want to transition and talk about today, about 2019. Because as I read through in 1 Corinthians 1, what Paul writes about preaching Christ crucified, the people who hear it and react are, are not, you wouldn't call them Jews and Gentiles today. Christ's crucifixion is still today a stumbling block to some and foolishness to others. And I think it looks different ways now, um, but I think that the, that the reaction or the experience of sharing, hey, here's what happened. Here's the story of Jesus birth, life, death, resurrection, and here's what it means for us. We know that we've experienced some different reactions as we've, whether talked about what God is up to in our lives or we've seen people online making comments about this whole idea that didn't make any sense to them. The gospel, 
the good news, Christ crucified. And so I think the stumbling block and the foolishness today, it comes from a different perspective. But, you know, one of the episodes I recently talked about, um, what is sin? And I think that's a big stumbling block that many people have. Uh, That was episode 56, What is Sin? Where I dug into the idea that, that many in our world are are not buying into the premise in the first place that we've fallen short, that we've sinned, that we've missed the mark, and that there is this separation from God. And, um, you know, I mentioned, I forget if it was G.K. Chesterton or C.S. Lewis who said, you know, we're in this weird position now where we first have to convince people of sin, of the initial separation, and then we (laughs) try to present the good news. So you almost have to lead it with the bad news that there's a disconnect, and then you can share the good news that there's the ability to reconnect. And so I think that's one of the reasons for people today in 2019 to say, ah, this, this thing just doesn't make sense to me. And then there are others who just flat out say, well, hey, there's lots of books that were written 2,000 years ago that were you know, kind of a mixture of fantasy and reality and wish fulfillment and trying to make, you know, something out of nothing or make more of something that did happen but was not that big of a deal. And people who think, yeah, Jesus was a guy and he did his thing, but after his death, his disciples tried to hype him up, tried to pretend like he was something that he wasn't and you know, now we have the Bible. And um, I think that's one of the ways that people kind of write this off as foolishness. Another one, this was, this was kind of the first thing that popped into my head when I thought of what is it that's a, a stumbling block or foolishness about the crucifixion for people who live in our modern world. And I think the whole connection to and the idea of a sacrificial system is a big part of that disconnect today. You know, it's um, you've probably heard or seen or something come across the idea that people say, okay, let me get this straight. So God is loving and God is really mad at me because of my sin. And so because he's so loving, instead of punishing me forever, he's decided to let his son come to earth and be tortured and killed 
And God was so mad that someone had to be murdered and executed like this. But it was Jesus instead of me. And I'm guessing that many of us have heard or read or I don't even know how else you would come across it, but I've come across this idea because the sacrificial system that existed in all religions at that point in human history, um, we, we don't really resonate with that. And so it's such a confusing, bizarre thing. I mean, you go, wait, death had to pay for mistakes you know it doesn't it doesn't quite add up to many people in our modern world and when i think about these um not knee-jerk reactions when i think about these reasons from people of why this is this idea of christ crucified is a stumbling block or is foolishness in our modern world. We looked earlier at why it was in the ancient world in the first century, but why it is now, I think those are a few of the reasons. And Paul says, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Um, for those of us listening right now who have experienced God's work in our lives, we, we know we can even listen to those arguments of why this is foolishness, why this is a stumbling block, and say, Okay, I mean, you're bringing me along on that intellectual journey. I, I understand what you're saying. But what I can tell you is that God's been at work in my life. I've experienced the power of God. And I don't necessarily have all the answers I shouldn't even say necessarily because definitely don't. Definitely don't have all the answers. But what I can tell you is the impact, the change, the new life that I've experienced as a result of the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. Um, it's, it's been unbelievable. And I want you to know that I, Alan, uh, the reason that this podcast exists is because as I've been dealing with my health stuff that, like I said, was kind of the impetus for me to start recording in the first place, to talk through what it feels like to be waiting, to be in the middle of having no answers, to feel like, man, is this ever going to 
change or end or improve or decline? Is anything going to happen? What I experienced in the meantime along the way was God's work in my life. And if other people hear my story, hear the story of crucifixion, and for whatever reason, it, it turns them off, it doesn't resonate, it's foolishness, it's a stumbling block. Um, what I can share is my experience. What I can share is the way God has worked and moved and changed me. And if you're listening and you have experienced that, you know what I'm talking about. You know that God brings life, not necessarily the way we pictured it, not necessarily the way we want it, but he brings life into hopeless, dead-seeming situations. And if you're listening and and you've never really, you know, been convinced of that, uh, if you've kind of been hung up because this stuff seems like foolishness or you have some stumbling blocks along the way, and I, I don't mean stumbling block there at all in a demeaning way, but things where you're like, I'm getting tripped up as I'm trying to follow the logic here, as I'm trying to understand, you know, there are some, some jumps along the way that I'm not sure that I'm following. I'm not sure that I'm willing to make that jump. Um, I would encourage you like I did at the end of the episode on sin to, to talk to someone in your life who is a person of faith, who's a person uh, who you know is seeking after God and just ask them, Hey, you know, I don't really, I don't really get this. Can you, can you talk with me through some of this stuff? And when I've had people ask me those sorts of questions, usually what it comes down to is I say, yeah, I don't really get it either. Um, You know, following after Jesus doesn't mean I've got this formula and I've figured out all the answers. Um, But what it is is this trust that surrender and submission and letting go and making instead of me the you know we use the term in in the church lord making me the supreme ruler of my own life uh, instead of that making jesus supreme ruler of my life and watch what happens because that's been my experience. And I'm guessing as you've connected with other people of faith, uh, that's been your experience and their experience along the way. And so how I want to wrap this up is wherever you're at on this spectrum of faith or non-faith, 
uh, if you resonate more with the beginning part of, yeah, Christ crucified is kind of a stumbling block. It's kind of foolishness. Um, or if you're on the other end of the spectrum, it's, it's the power and wisdom of God. I want to encourage you to, to keep letting God work. Uh, even if you're way on the spectrum that says, man, this is foolishness, doesn't even make sense. Just be open. Be open. And if you're experiencing on the other end of that spectrum, you've been living in that new life. You've seen what God can do. Um, keep being open. Because it's easy to, you know, just sort of fall into a rut, a routine, and go, hey, I'm just going to keep doing the thing I did yesterday and the day before and the day before. And to kind of forget about what it looks like to submit and surrender and to really turn over that supreme rulership of your life to God. So no matter where you find yourself right now, be open. God wants to be involved and at work in our lives. Uh, if we say yes to him, if we surrender, if we let him. So let's be open and let's let God work.